This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Every child deserves a team. That's the belief behind Jigsaw Learning, a proud sponsor of the B Podcast Network. And it's why the company, founded by educators Curtis and Lorna Hewson, focuses on ensuring success for all learners through collaborative response, an approach in which every child is supported by a team. Through customized professional learning that incorporates workshops, leadership development, online learning opportunities, and more, Jigsaw Learning can guide you every step of the way to create a plan to maximize the collective capacity in your schools. Learn more at jigsawlearning.ca. Welcome, everybody. You are once again listening to the Authority Podcast on the B Podcast Network. I'm Ross Romano, and today I'm really pleased to welcome Tanya Sheckley to the show. Tanya is the founder and president of Up Academy, a progressive elementary lab school in San Mateo, California. She also hosts the Rebel Educator podcast and speaks across the country on the future of education. And we're here to discuss her book, also called Rebel Educator, which is available from Houndstooth Press. Tanya, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Ross. I'm excited to talk. Yes, me too. And I think, you know, a great place to start is uh, what is a rebel educator? Because obviously it's the title of your book, it's your podcast, and you do go into some description of it. Um, and I think that's a great thing for our listeners to hear. Yeah, a rebel educator is that educator or that school or district that is really challenging what has traditionally been thought of as education, trying new things, looking at new research, attempting new projects or new ways of teaching in the classroom, and really pushing the status quo of what what we've done in the past and what we can do in the future. And that might be, you know, that might be in the classroom, that could also be with seat time, that could also be with hiring practices, that could also be with leadership, it could also be with the way that we schedule our days and subject matter and the way we combine interdisciplinary subjects. Um, so there are so many different things and different ways to go about it. But the core is resisting tradition and pushing the status quo. Excellent. Yeah, the thing I, I liked a lot about reading, uh, even about this phrasing and then how you described it is, and I feel like so much of the discourse around education that I'm exposed to when we think about there's people who fancy themselves rebels because they just kind of say negative things about education. <laughs> or you also have, I think, this feeling among a lot of educators who feel exactly the way that you describe, right? They're in it. They're trying to make an impact. They have all these ideas for things they want to do for students, and they feel stifled by the structure of the system and the way schools are set up and things that are kind of preventing them. And they may feel that their only option to rebel against that is to 
exit the profession or exit their school. Um, but I, you know, I really love the way that you're describing these opportunities to kind of rebel against things that aren't working the way they should within the schools and consider, okay, how do we reframe this around our, our passions? And I'm wondering, you know, when you think about from the, the school leadership perspective, when we really do want this type of rebel educator working in our school, right, and being creative and innovating and thinking of ways to meet their students, what type of a culture would a leader want to create that encourages teachers to become rebels like this? I think it's a culture of curiosity. It's what we're looking for in our students and really trying to cultivate that idea that asking questions is good, that we're not looking for students who just sit in their classroom and be quiet and listen and don't ask questions, but that innate curiosity and that continual questioning is really a good thing. And how do we continue to foster that? And if we want that in our students, we have to do that and cultivate that as a culture from a leadership perspective. So all of our educators should constantly be learning and teachers love to learn. Like this is part of why they came into the profession because they love children, because they want to make a difference in the world and because they love learning and trying new things. They're consistently, you know, learning about new ways of doing things, new methodology. And a lot of times this is done in professional development in schools um, with the best intentions for everyone to learn one thing. But when we can really open that up and listen to our educators the way we listen to our students and have them learning the things that they want to learn or having a pool of funds instead of coming in and saying, okay, we're doing this development on this day. Say, hey, this is a day of development. What do you want to learn? Here's your pool of funds. Find a way to go learn that whether it's an online class, an in-person conference, a group that you could collaborate with and build a network, like really encouraging our educators to think outside of the schoolhouse box and the other things they want to learn and want to do. Um, and that starts with the leadership really encouraging that. Um, and also the leadership finding their own coach um, and their own mentor and their own ways of learning new things. I know definitely myself as a school leader, I have areas where I'm lacking and, you know, finding those coaches, finding those mentors, helping me get better at those things has made me a better leader, but it's also created that culture where my staff and our educators that are working with us are all seeing that I'm doing that for me too. And that's the expectation that they continue to do that personal work as well. So creating that curiosity, creating that ongoing learning, um, creating an atmosphere where it's okay to make mistakes we're not necessarily going to move fast and break stuff, but where we can make mistakes. And when that happens, how do we learn from that? How do we change our system or our process or our procedure or whatever it was that broke down? Or do we need to create something new because this was something that we hadn't foreseen coming because something has shifted or something has changed? Um, so being nimble, being flexible, being open to that change and continually going into it with a sense of curiosity. Yeah, those are all great elements in that, that curiosity piece, I think, relates to, to so many different areas, right? I, I was recently chatting with author Jeffrey Benson about um, what, what teachers are looking for, and he talked about professional development and how schools, it's 
totally fine to have certain professional development that is everybody in the school is participating in, but then it's also a great thing to set aside funds or stipends for teachers to go out and pursue learning that they individually want to do, right? So they can think about what am I really interested in? What do I want to learn more about? What growth am I pursuing? And how can I go out and learn about that and feel like supported to go and do that? Um, I also just recorded an interview here with Amber Harper about teachers developing their own teacher brand, right? And saying like, oh, who, reflecting on who do I want to be as a teacher? What am, what unique self am I bringing to this profession? And how do I establish that? And those are all ways, I think, to develop that strong dynamic between school leadership and the teachers to say everybody is really feeling like they're able to live out the career that they want to. And I also love, you know, there was a line that stood out in one of the uh, the quotes about the book from Kyle Wagner, and he wrote for readers, you'll learn how to build the kind of learning experience that made you want to become an educator in the first place. And this is something I've been thinking about so much lately as I've been talking to people about what we need to do to improve our teacher retention and attracting new teachers into the profession. And that thing that happens too often where there are these specific mission-driven, impact-driven reasons why teachers want to teach and why they go and work into a school and then depending on where they are there may be a lot of things happening that it's really quickly like oh this is not i'm not able to do why this is not why i was here right i'm not and i i thought it was so critical and it's very clear in this book even though you personally weren't trained as an educator, right? And you you came to founding a school through a different pathway, the respect that you have for the teachers and the work that they do and the reason why they're there. And so why, you know, why is it important to you to design a school experience that enables teachers to stay connected to the reasons why they got into education? I think a place to start with that is I I have a quote as I was flipping through the book myself from a 16-year a 16-year veteran educator. And she said, I can't pinpoint one, but I'll say my most memorable moments had nothing to do with curriculum or academics at all. And everything to know with doing, I had made a difference for a student, whether in the moment or years later when they reached out to me. And that's like, you mentioned teachers coming into the profession and not being able to do the things that they thought they wanted to do. And I think a lot of times we think about curriculum or what's happening in the classroom. And I think a lot of teachers do come in and, and they're handed a canned curriculum and the full thing is scripted and it's scoped and sequenced by the year and the age group. And this is what they have to do. And so there's not a lot of creativity. There's not a lot of room for possibility. There's not a lot of room for, for rebellion in that type of model. But when you can make class sizes a little bit smaller, create more time and space in the day for for teachers to really get to know their students. And whether that's through something like creating a wonder wall in the classroom, which is a simple thing to do where students can put up a question of anything that they're wondering from like, we've had questions of why is the sky blue? How do cars work? How do frogs jump? What are the moons of Jupiter, right? Anything that the kids come up with can go on that wonder wall. And that's a time for teachers to connect and to really talk through the students' interests and see that they're being heard in the classroom. But anything, any time we can create 
excuse me, anytime we can create those experiences and those opportunities to build relationships, that's so much of why I think most educators came into teaching was to build those relationships, was to support students, was to be that solid person in their life that they can count on, that they can talk to, that they can learn from, and a safe space where they can build friendships and build their own identities of who they are as people. And so the more... I'm going to say unnecessary things, but I know that all schools have are doing all of the things because they think that all of the things are necessary. Mm -hmm. But the more that we can ask that question of why are we doing this? Is it truly necessary? What is our end goal? And is this thing getting us there? And taking a few of those layers off of our educators' plates so that they have more time to plan their own lessons and have fun in the classroom, more time to spend with their students and talking about what their students are interested in and stoking their curiosity and frankly, more time for themselves. We demand as a society so much from our teachers. And I think there's this perception that because they're only teaching and depending on where you are, nine or 10 months out of the year, and they have two months off for summer and there's all the breaks throughout the year that, that they have this cushy job. Um, and that's, it's just not true. I think they're very much professionals and they're very much invested in their education, their training, and all of the experience that they have working with and growing our next generation of children. And when we can give them that respect and give them the time and space to take care of themselves and to take care of their students, they stay and they love their jobs, but it's hard. Yeah. And, and I, I was even doing some mental math earlier and thinking about how much it makes a difference when uh, teachers are able to really invest the time in developing relationships with their students and thinking about, okay, let's say in a high school where you may have your class for 40 minutes a day and maybe there's 25 kids in the class over the course of the year, if, if your time was divided evenly, maybe you have three or four hours per kid, right? The more time that we can create and listeners who heard our episode recently with Peter DeWitt will know how much we talked about that time barrier and what, you know, what are the things that we can do as leaders to free up those restrictions that teachers feel like are preventing them from doing what they want to do. And one of the biggest things a leader can do is say, how do I create more time for you? <laughs> and how do I figure out what are the things that we can, in that case, de-implement or take away or shift around to say it's either not a high priority right now or it's just something that is not having any, you know, the impact that we needed to have to justify continuing to do that. And then having that trust to give teachers that autonomy to say, if I provide you with the time, and if you're able to learn what students are interested in, I trust that with your expertise as an educator, you'll be able to connect their interests and passions to what they need to learn through the curriculum in a way that's relevant to them, right? And so it takes a little bit of trust to kind of say, all right, you don't have to necessarily do it by the book here, because if you have the more you know, the more you can make it relevant to them, and then you can figure it out. But yeah, that time piece really just stands out as it is the number one challenge that we have, because there, when you look at all the different things that schools have to accomplish, there's just never enough time for everything. And yet by prioritizing more effectively, we can at least perhaps create more time for the things that we really want to do.
it's it's how do you create more time? How do you really give that trust to educators and say you don't need to teach this scripted curriculum exactly the way that it is and say these things at these times, but you know what they need to learn. We can create this experience for our students and giving that space and that trust to be able to do that. But that also takes more time because now you are creating things and you're not just going off a book that was handed. And so this is another skill set and more time and more development and more planning. Why do we have five 40 minute classes in a day with 25 students? What are other ways that could look like that teachers could still impart the knowledge or work with other teachers in the building? to co-create longer learning blocks and deeper learning experiences that's going to cover the same material, but in a different way and give them all a chance to collaborate, to work together and free up a little bit of time in each of their classes as they're working together through that. I once had it described to me as like as, as someone who is a speaker or who leads workshops, right? I might go into an organization and run a two hour or a half day or a full day workshop. And I have hours of prep time to do that. I'm going to go in, I'm going to spend one day with their people and then I'm done until, you know, the next time we have set up or the next organization or whatever that is. But our teachers are essentially doing this and running those workshops and giving those talks five to six hours a day every day for 10 months. And they need that summer because they're burnt out because they are running on that hamster wheel as fast as they can while students are there. And they need that time to recharge because if they didn't, like nobody can run consistently at that pace. So how do we slow down that pace so that it is more attainable? And also how do we as a society really value our teachers for the 10 months a year of work that they do, because that is a full year of work. I don't know a single teacher that's not working in the summer or that's not working over winter break or spring break. Like they're planning, they're grading papers, they're thinking about their class. They're still putting in that mental energy that even if you're not in the classroom with a group of students, there's a ton of mental energy and planning that goes into how do I support my students' traumatic happenings? How do I help them work through this in the classroom? How do I support their uh, relationships amongst their peers and help them work through whatever might be happening there? How do I help them develop a healthy sense of self and healthy peer relationships? And how do I model that with them? Like all of this is outside mental space that's far beyond, you know, project-based learning or curriculum or any of those things, but our teachers are doing it all the time for our kids. Yeah. And I think so much of it goes back to what you referenced earlier about the culture, about that freedom to make mistakes, so to speak, where one, if a teacher is convinced that something they've been doing historically isn't quite working and they try something new, it's no guarantee that the new thing works right away. But that's fine as long as we recognize that and say, okay, we need to innovate again. Two, the job is that you're going to have a brand new group of students every year. So it's no guarantee that work before is going to work again. So it's that constant process of saying, okay, I need to keep tweaking what I'm doing to fit the students that are in front of me and um, which is unique professions. It would be like if you were the marketing director for Nike and every year, the whole world's awareness of Nike got wiped out of their memories and you had to, you had to tell them what, it, you know, there would be no carryover because we have brand new students whatever we did last year no longer applies. So it takes planning and preparation and 
continuous learning required there. And even within one class, you have a variety of students with unique needs and uh, you really have to learn how to relate to them. What's one thing that I imagine when you first founded the school, uh, which I guess was about seven years ago or so, you had a variety of teachers working in the building who have been in other schools. And so they had some uh, experience with what different schools are like. And then you, of course, had your perspective coming from the business world. Uh, I'm interested in what are some of the things that you and your educators, you feel like learn from one another. I had this thought, and you can tell me if I'm completely off track, but you know, the subtitle of this book is create classrooms where impact and imagination meet. The piece that we often propose is kind of missing in modern schools is that imagination piece. Um, you have a Sir Ken Robinson quote in the book about that, about how, you know, all of the kind of innovations of humankind come from imagination, but schools aren't exactly structured to to foster imagination. And so considering that perhaps the imagination piece comes from experiences you've had in different walks and the teachers are saying, okay, here's how we take those new ideas and make educational impact. And I think about that because sometimes I see people having these one-sided, you know, we can call them conversations, but really they're monologues <laughs> about how schools should work. And they have all these ideas that they think are so imaginative. And it's like, if you're not actually talking to people who work in schools, like how are you, you have to make them also practical. It has to work. Um, I'm just curious from your perspective, you know, what are some, you know, what are some of the things certainly that you learned as you started really working with those educators, but also what do you feel like they've learned from you? Yeah, it's hard. It's a lot easier to just talk about education and all the things that you want to fix or that you think need fixing, but to actually try and do something different is a whole, whole different beast. Yeah. And I, like you said, I came from the corporate world. I did not come from education. So I came in pretty much running the school, like a business. We still run the school like a business, you know, and expecting teachers to be like corporate workers and teachers are not corporate workers and teachers have expectations of a school being like a school. And so even things like teacher contracts, I didn't have teacher contracts our first year, like here's your hiring offer. This is your job. Like you come in and you do your job and we work together and figure out the best ways to do those things. And then you go home and teachers have annual contracts and that's what they're used to. And so that was one of my first learnings was, okay, how do I, how do I structure it enough like a school so that I can attract really high quality educators and they feel comfortable coming and doing the work because it's similar enough to a structure that they're used to. The flip side of that, you know, this year, we had we hired a bunch of new staff. We did two weeks of training. So we used to um, used to have teachers come in and I kind of share my philosophy and be like, you're the teacher you teach. I run the business and we work together in that capacity. And I just in the beginning, I didn't have the knowledge or frankly, the leadership ability to really develop people the way I could have or should have at that point in time. And I think that's something that's fairly universal for lots of new entrepreneurs as they start a business. I saw a quote once that said, any CEO that started a business isn't qualified to be a CEO. You learn that those qualifications and you gain that experience through time and through experience. And so that was definitely one of my learnings is that, okay, I can't have, bring someone in and just expect them to do the things that align with our philosophy without giving them more background and more training and more information on how to do that. Um, so we're at a point now in our school where we do that when educators come in and we have a full, right now it's two weeks of training and philosophy and project building and background and team building. 
And getting back to your question, one of the team building activities we did at the beginning of this year was around um, disc personalities um, and also around kind of where we are on a human spectrogram on different questions. And one of our questions was our tolerance for risk. And as a new school, as a young school, as a nonprofit, as a startup, like there are a lot of things that we do that we just take the leap and hope that it's going to work. <laughs> and where an older school or definitely our traditional public schools that are such behemoth icons of our culture. And, you know, they're here and they're top heavy and so many people are doing the work and it's a well-oiled machine. We are the fast and nimble race car that sometimes falls apart on the course, if you will, versus the old steady Buick that's just plodding along. And so talking to our educators about where they fell in this continuum of risk tolerance and a couple of them that have been with me for several years now said they started on the other side of the building, out the door, like no tolerance for risk at all, happily doing their jobs. And now they're somewhere in the middle of the room. Like, yeah, we understand we we have a tolerance for risk. We understand how it's exciting. We understand the choices that we're making. And like, we get to be a part of that and we get to make those choices and we get to take those risks. And there's not really, I mean, there there is a very big price for large failure, but failure on the realm of, oh, I tried this activity and it didn't work, or I planned this project and these three pieces of it didn't really fit that well. Next time I'll do it differently. And here's how, like those types of things, there's plenty of room and bandwidth for, because that's really what we want to model for our students is we want them to take those risks. We want them to have those failures. We learn the most from our failures. We remember the most from the things we tried that didn't work. And allowing our students to do that now when they're young in the classroom, instead of when they launch a school, when they're in their 40s, is just a much safer space to build those traits, to build those skills, and to have those experiences. Um, and so my educators were saying the same thing, that they're excited to do that. Their tolerance for risk has greatly increased because of all of the innovative things that we try as a small school. Yeah, I imagine one of the areas that requires continued close collaboration is around your, you know, I would say, compared to what the status quo is, your ambitious approach to inclusive classrooms, which I think is something that you specifically had in mind when founding the school and saying, I have a particular vision in mind for what I would like this to look like, but it probably looked a lot different than what teachers may have been used to from prior schools. And I'm sure it continues to be iterative because again, every group of students is different um, to say, okay, you know, how do we kind of stick to our objective here and our goal of having that inclusivity, um, but also you know, be really mindful of the things that make that challenging and how do we continue to be adaptive and innovative within that context? Um, you know, can you talk to to our listeners a little bit about what, what the inclusive classrooms do look like in your school um, and kind of what, you know, what that work looks like to continue sticking with it? Sure, sure. So yeah, our school was founded 
inspired by my daughter. My oldest daughter had cerebral palsy. Um, she was super curious, super social, very intelligent, but nonverbal and non-ambulatory. And so finding the right educational fit for her was a challenge. Um, it just wasn't something that public schools did well, but I could see the things that were going really well for her in school. And I could also see the things that we could tweak and change and do better and how it could look different. Um, and so that was that was the initial start of the school was how do we create a school that's inclusive of students with physical disabilities, but allows all of these opportunities for a wide variety of learners and gives them all the knowledge they need to be successful in middle school and beyond. Launching the school, one of the beautiful things about not being in education before is that I didn't know all of the things that you're supposed to know about education. I, my daughter was in a project-based learning parent participation public school, which our school is very much modeled after a lot of what they did. Um, it was a great public school in so many ways. She just wasn't getting the best support that she could have gotten, which is what led to the founding of Up Academy. You know, as we've grown and as we've looked at what that means, you know, we we teach in a very experiential, very project-based way. One of the things I didn't know about education was project-based learning is only for gifted learners. They're the ones that get the extra time to work on projects and follow their interests and all of those things. The thing is that it works for all students and all students are more engaged and more excited to come to school when they're doing work that's important to them and that they're interested in. And so we, we've we always used a project-based approach. It's very multi-sensory. It's very experiential. Our students are out on field trips at least once a month. This month, they're going on four. It's been a crazy month. But then as we've grown, it's how do we, you know, we do have a wide variety of learning profiles. And so creating an atmosphere where our students with physical disabilities are supported and the life skills that they need to work on therapeutically along with their academics. And um, so all of that is fully integrated into the classroom with support, but also for the rest of our students, you know, what happens when somebody's humming and somebody else doesn't like it when they hum, but they work better when they hum, but you can't concentrate when they're humming. And then there might be a student with sensory issues who has noise canceling headphones. So now we have someone who gets to wear headphones, someone who's humming and someone who doesn't like humming. So when we just make headphones available to everyone and set up a few classroom agreements around how we use those headphones, now everyone's accommodated. The kids that work better when they hum, can hum. The kids that get distracted can put on headphones. The kids with any sensory challenges that need the headphones have the headphones. They don't stand out. They're not being othered in any way. Nobody really notices or cares that they need headphones because everybody else is wearing headphones too. You know, it's simple accommodations like this in the classroom that can make you know, what could be a pretty chaotic learning environment when you start differentiating lessons, when you start doing small groups, when you start doing project work, the classroom can be chaotic. Often when I walk in, there's 10 kids doing different things. Some are cutting, some are gluing, some are coloring, some are researching, some are writing, some are humming. <laughs> you know? And they're, they're all doing their thing and building their project and they're all working on what they should be working on, but it doesn't look like a typical classroom. It doesn't sound like a typical classroom. So when we can provide those accommodations, whether it's fidgets in a peace corner, if a student gets overstimulated and there's too much, or they just need a break, or they've been researching for too long and they need to walk away from the computer, like there's a peace corner to go to in every classroom. And there's a box of fidgets in every classroom that's open for every student. There's headphones in every classroom that students can use with their classroom agreements. So we can build a really inclusive environment pretty quickly and pretty easily that's going to reach 
not everyone, but a wide variety of students and do so in a really student-centered and relevant way. Yeah, yeah. So, and for our um, listeners, this next part, I really, you know, I really want to highlight, um, which is so we, you've heard this uh, discussion so far about all of the creative, innovative, just really motivated things that are happening within this school, right? And in your school, you may be doing things that are different from this, but I'm sure you there's a lot of similarities in the dedication that you and your student or your, your educators are bringing every single day, right? And you're constantly just trying to do everything that you can to do the best thing for your students. And yet, how would anybody know about that? And when we think about the perception that people people have of schools and in our communities and our parents and families, that's a critical piece. And there's an entire chapter in the book about educating the parents, right? About what we're doing. This is how we're teaching. This is what experiential learning looks like in our school. And this is something that's really important for every school to think about. Some do a really good job of it. Some haven't done as much yet. I think you wrote in the book that even, you know, you had experience having been a parent of kids who were in school before you founded the school. And then even when you founded the school, it was a little more difficult or, you know, it was easier to forget about this piece than you would have realized because once you get into the middle of it and you're trying to do all these things, it's not necessarily on the original checklist to say, oh, okay, we have to inform folks about this. But, you know, what have you learned through that process? And what have your educators found valuable about that? Because I'm definitely of the opinion that, I mean, to teachers, when the school really takes the lead on saying we really are going to be communicative, it just puts them in such a better position to succeed. Yeah, well, I think as a school, some of the things that we did really well from the beginning was we started at the end. We developed our graduate profile as the first thing that we started with. So we knew where we wanted to end up. We developed our school values and our school mission, and we hired very much along those lines. Like, this is what we're doing. This is our mission. This is who we're serving. This is the way we're doing it. This is the way we want our students to the characteristics we want them to have when they graduate and leave here and move to middle school and beyond in the world. And so remaining true to that what and why is core, you know, is core to being able to market to families or talk to families um, and having the teachers fully on board and knowing that they're coming in, not just teaching, but they're coming in to a mission. They're coming into the story. They're coming into the growth and development of the school and of the students and the families within the school. Um, and so I, I, I tell them all the time, like they are the heart of the school. They are the ones that the families see and every day and communicate with and trust. And so they need to know almost as much of what's going on in the school as I do. Like that's my job to continually share and be transparent and be open about what our mission is and how we're accomplishing that and how we're doing. And as we're growing now, we're launching a middle school, like we're looking through our graduate profile, like is our elementary school graduate profile appropriate for middle school? And we've had several community meetings already on how do we how do we shift that? How do we change that? What does a middle school graduate look like? So part of that's involving the community as well. And that's as we've grown, you know, what I talk about in the book, educating the parents, part of it's teachers talking to them on a consistent basis. It's communication from the leadership of the school on a consistent basis. It's that transparency of mission and vision and values and graduate profile and making sure that all of those things are continually in alignment because that's what builds the relationship and builds the trust 
with the organization. This is what they say they're going to do. And these are the ways they're doing it. And I can actually see that in action with my child in the school. And those are the things that build. And now that we have a community, it's a conversation we've been having with a lot of our communities. Okay, we know we know the magic of all of these things working together. How do we better convey this out to the world? Um, and so now our families are starting to write some of that copy and writing stories and writing testimonials and sharing you know, their experiences and their students' experiences, which is the best feeling and the best validation, um, knowing that we are doing the things that we set out to do. But it's difficult, especially if you're doing something new or if you're trying something new, if you're in a traditional school that's now going to launch an innovative micro hub program or launch a pilot program within a handful of classrooms. What does that look like? And how do you communicate that effectively to parents that this is the new thing we're trying? This is the way we're going to teach. This is why we're doing it. And these are our outcomes and stick with us through this process because learning is messy. It's going to be messy. We're going to make mistakes, but we're going to have a lot of fun. We're all going to grow in the process. So drawing those things together and just being, you know, honest with what's continually happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I you know, I think it tracks back to the idea that um, for, for a student and for a parent, that decision to be a part of a certain school community, be engaged with that school, be engaged in your learning is a decision that you're making every day. Right? It's not a one-time thing, whether or not, you know, maybe you're part of a traditional public school and you didn't necessarily feel like you had choice in where you're going to school, or maybe you did either way. That's still a choice that the school can invite you to make by what they're doing to consistently live out the mission, make what the mission is clear, show, demonstrate what they're doing, have transparency around decisions so that it makes an impression to say, oh, now I understand why we're doing this. So now I understand um, that this was this decision was made with me in mind. Uh, I think, you know, what you have done with the full school themes follows along the same lines to say this is another example of a way where we can be doing the whole school can be engaged in something at the same time and everybody understands what that is and it's something that we can point to and talk about and discuss and just kind of have um that you know consistent reminder of what we stand for why we're doing it um and uh and you know i think that that makes a huge impression to those students and their families when they see that clear evidence of it. They don't have to infer it. Absolutely. Awesome. You know, we're getting closer to the end here, but there is uh, another piece that um, I know, you know, you had some thoughts on it and it was, it's certainly super relevant to so many um, conversations I've been having recently. And, and there was a, a veteran teacher who I think you had interviewed as part of the book around what would make your job better. And the teacher said the ability to teach my subject in a way that builds confidence in my students and allows them to actually learn, think and create, right? Which certainly I think we've talked a lot about. And then she concludes by saying, oh, and being treated and paid like a professional. And this is like a huge, huge thing. You know what? And I think this piece of being treated like a professional we've talked about a lot because it's all those things that give the teachers autonomy, that respects their expertise, that allows them to create and try new things and really bring their unique selves to that job. But then that piece of being paid is a whole other thing. And it's huge for attracting more young, bright minds into the profession and saying that we do have an educator shortage right now. We know that these teachers are so critical to ensuring that all students are able to have an education like this. And there are certain things that we 
have to think more about to ensure that's an attractive opportunity. Do you have thoughts on how, you know, we can consider as just as a system doing a better job of compensating teachers for their work? Yeah, I mean, as a system and as a society, we have to decide that this is something that's important to us. You know, if we look at some of the top education systems in the world, you look at the Finnish education system and some of the others, like it's really difficult to become a teacher. You go through lots of education, you go through a master's degree, you go through teaching in the classroom and being mentored by someone else. You have to be the top in your field before you're trusted with young minds. Whereas in this country right now, we have programs where you don't even need to have an education degree or any experience with children. You can just walk into a classroom and teach. And if we're going to hold the profession in high regard, and we're really going to, if we really decide that we want what's best for the next generation of students, then we need to support the people who are teaching them and helping them to become the people that they're going to be in the future. And until we do that as a country and as a society, and we fund schools the way that they should be funded, I mean, that that's the biggest crux of the problem. When you, you talk about inclusion, you talk about students with disabilities and the funding that schools have gotten for those programs and students, you know, what was promised from the government versus what has come through are very different things. You know, that the other piece of it is schools could be smaller. Schools could act more nimbly. Schools don't need to be large behemoths that have 600 students and 100 staff. When we make schools smaller, we make class sizes smaller, we put more trust and onus on the teachers, there's a lot less overhead to that. We can thin out a lot of the business aspect and the filing and the paperwork when you don't need as many people to go through 600 student records as you do for a group of 50, right? So there are other ways to restructure within the budget that we have that would rebalance the budget and rebalance where money is going and be able to pay teachers more by, frankly, having fewer education government employees. There's always two ways. You either reduce expenses or increase income. So if we're not getting any more money coming into the system, then we've got to reduce the expenses if we want to be able to pay more. Ideally, we would just decide that kids are really important and that they're the future of our world and we should invest properly in them and fund teachers and schools the way they should all be funded. Yeah, I can certainly <laughs> agree with that. <laughs> so one, one question we like to wrap up with here a lot of the time is if somebody only has time to read one part of the book or they ha they have to figure out one place to start. Um, do you have one piece where you would direct people to say, start here and you'll get a good idea of what this is all about. And then, you know, you can read the rest later, of course, but try this first. I love the, what is the purpose of your lesson? And that's kind of the crux of, we've touched on it a little bit in this conversation of why are we teaching five 40 minute classes a day? Why are we teaching specific curriculum that's scripted? Why are we teaching things in these particular ways? And that chapter scratches the surface of it as well as, you know, what are we teaching and why? What, what is the purpose of that lesson? And I had an educator last year do some project-based learning professional development, and she was really struggling. Like she had built out all of the activities that they were going to do and what the whole project looked like, but she was really struggling with the driving question of the project of, you know, what 
what is that driving question? What are we doing here? And I'm like, well, what are you doing here? She's like, well, we're planting a garden and we're going to watch it grow. We're going to learn about life cycles. We're going to learn about the weather system. Like, okay, but what's the overarching concept there? What are you teaching there? And as we dug more into that conversation, it came out to systems and cycles and seasons. And so her driving question worked out to be something like, how can we see the cycles of our world through a garden because you're watching a tiny ecosystem in a garden and you're watching a full life cycle of plants and you're watching the weather system cycle and the way that it helps the plants grow. And then you're watching the seasonality of, well, I'm in California, so you can plant carrots in the winter and peas in the summer, right? I grew up in Wisconsin, you can't plant anything there in the winter, but <laughs> but what that seasonality is. And so it was all about cycles. And then we talk about, you know, cycles of life and like cycles of you know, as their childhood and then adolescence and adulthood and that, you know, there's just so many different things that then you can start to pull into that theme and talk about from science, but also from identity and also patterns in math and start to look at just the ways they fit together. And that was kind of the aha moment for her and project-based learning of like, oh, we're not fitting together all of these activities to learn about a garden. We're fitting together all of these activities to see the bigger picture of how cycles affect our work. And so that that's kind of the part of the basis of that chapter is like, what is the purpose of the lesson? What are you really teaching? And when we figure that out, it just opens the possibilities of the ways that we can teach it in so many ways. Excellent. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. And that definitely that organizing around the why. I mean, we going back to our earlier episode with Sean Slade, we talked about just the why of education as a whole, <laughs> thinking about why are we doing what we're doing to the individual lesson level. Never, never a bad place to start. Um, Tanya, I know that on your website, you have resources for educators and things they can use in their schools and other things. Where can people find more about your work or, or get some resources? Absolutely. So our school that's in San Mateo, California, our website is upacademysf.com. You can learn more about our school and our programs and the things that we're doing on site there. Um, Rebel Educator Book has a Rebel Educator website. So we have some fully built projects out there that lower elementary school teachers can take advantage of. We're working on getting some upper level stuff out there, but right now it's primarily lower. You can find links to the book there, links to the podcast, links to me, um, and links to the work that we do with schools in working with innovative programs, running pilot programs, creating micro hubs within schools, and just coaching with leadership and educators to work towards challenging the status quo. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Tanya, for being on the show. Um, we're, we will put the information in the show notes about Rebel Educator, the book, and where listeners can find it, as well as the website and your other resources. Uh, listeners, please do subscribe to The Authority for more in-depth author interviews like this one, or visit thepodcast.network to learn about all of our shows. Thanks again, Tanya. Thank you. This podcast was edited at the Davis Catalyst Center by Ryan Kai Griffiths. Album cover art was made by Natalie Harris. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E.